The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. You're listening to Volume 1, The Prehistoric World. This is Episode 11, Settling the World, Part 2. So far we have explored the migration of Homo sapiens from their heartland in Africa out into the Levant across Sinai and then eastwards parallel to the Himalayan mountain range across the Indian subcontinent and then down into Southeast Asia, crossing the East Indies and onto Australia. It was such a crazy journey that it pretty much took up an entire podcast and then some. Now we have to look at the rest of Eurasia and the Americas, so this week is going to be no different. Packed full of information and stories, and fascinating to boot. Going back to Eurasia, we know that by 80,000 years ago, Homo sapiens were present in both the Levant and China, so we can assume that there was a good migration of peoples before that time. Populations would have headed south after encounters with the Denisovans and populated Australia and Melanesia, which is New Guinea and the islands directly to its east. They could have encountered Homo floresiensis on this migration. What we do know is that there is not much evidence of Homo floresiensis after 50,000 years ago and not much evidence of Denisovans after 40,000 years ago. But whether Homo sapiens was directly responsible for their disappearance is debatable. Pinpointing the disappearance of Homo erectus is also a tricky affair. The highly respected Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History website suggests that it existed up until 143,000 years ago. So by this time, Homo erectus had disappeared too. This left just Homo sapiens and Neanderthals as the only two known hominin animals left on planet Earth after around 40,000 years ago. Obsidian Let me jump out of this story briefly and fast forward to the days of the Roman Empire and the eruption of the volcano Vesuvius. Many of you will know the story of the eruption of Vesuvius which destroyed the nearby cities of Herculaneum and Pompeii, immortalising them in the history of the world, not least of all for the preserved remains of those that succumbed to the volcanic ash which engulfed the two cities. Pliny the Younger was a magistrate in ancient Rome and probably no more than 18 years old when Pompeii was destroyed. Some time after the event, Pliny the Younger wrote of his knowledge of the eruption of Vesuvius 
to the Roman senator Tacitus, describing how his very own uncle and mentor Pliny the Elder was killed by the eruption. Overcome by the dense fumes, Pliny the Elder choked to death. Pliny the Elder himself was an author and naturalist who wrote the book Naturalis Historia, which described a great many topics such as anthropology, zoology, botany and mineralogy, to name just a few. In this book, Pliny the Elder describes that a member of the Roman Obsidia family discovered a unique type of volcano glass in Ethiopia, which was treasured as a desirable material by the people of Rome. As a consequence, the glass is called obsidian and naturally occurs when a lava less rich in magnesium and iron is expelled from a volcano and instantly cools down with very little crystallising. It is hard, dark and what's more is that it can be worked in exactly the same way as the core stones used in prehistoric stone tool production. Let's go back to our old friend from the first few podcasts of this series, Lewis Leakey. If you recall, Lewis Leakey was a Kenyan paleoanthropologist whose work has enabled us to better understand human evolution. In 1928, Lewis discovered the Kariandusi prehistoric site in Kenya, which at the time was the British colony and protectorate of Kenya. One of the most important finds made at this site was of Acheulean hand axes, which we described in episode 5. However, the majority of these hand axes were actually made using obsidian. This demonstrates to us that obsidian was being used for Stone Age technology since the Acheulean tool culture was active many hundreds of thousands of years ago. Why is this relevant to the current podcast? Well, it's because obsidian tools have helped us to understand one of the next migrations in the Far East, which brings us to a country that we have not yet previously mentioned, namely Japan. There are two important factors with the obsidian stone tools found in Japan. Firstly, the age of the tools, and secondly, the progression of the technology. Human presence on the islands of Japan could have occurred as early as 40,000 years ago. With the lower sea levels, it is likely that Japan would have been easily accessible via the Russian island of Sakhalin, which would have likely have presented a land bridge route to the Japanese island of Hokkaido. Otherwise, there would have been a sea route from the Korean peninsula to the Japanese island of Kyushu. Back in 2007, archaeologists stated that they believed humans were mining obsidian in the Tokiji prefecture of Japan and using it to create stone tools. Some of the stone tools were trapezoid stone tools. Trapezoids are a form of microliths and microliths are a very advanced stone tool. If we look back on this podcast series analysis of stone tools, we can refer to the older one industry as Mode 1, 
the Acheulean industry as mode 2 and the Mousterian industry as mode 3. For more information about Older One and Acheulean, please go back and listen to episode 5. And for the Mousterian, it's episode 7. The microlithic industry from which these Japanese Paleolithic trapezoids come from is actually mode 5. Mode 4 is the Aurignacian industry, which we'll come back to later. The trapezoid obsidian microliths from Japan are thought to be around 35,000 years old and they are unsurprisingly shaped like a trapezoid, a small four-sided shape with one end wider than the other. It is thought that this may have been hafted with a long wooden handle to be used potentially like an arrow. This is a very advanced tool technology for the time, but more importantly, it demonstrated that Homo sapiens had advanced onto Japan. While they were colonising modern Japan, something extremely interesting was also going on in modern Europe. Neanderthal Disappearance As mentioned previously, Mode 4 technology is the Aurignacian culture, which dates from around 43,000 years ago to around 28,000 years ago and is considered to be found in Central and Southern Europe. This fits in perfectly with the next part of the story which details the movement of Homo sapiens into the range of the Neanderthals, who themselves have been attributed with the older Mode 3 Mousterian technology. The type site for Aurignacian technology is Aurignac in the south of modern day France. The Aurignacian actually demonstrates among other things that humans had a real desire to create art, which is something we haven't discussed in too much detail, but something that we will tackle in a dedicated podcast in the very near future. Now I do believe that it is quite possible for Homo sapiens and Neanderthals to have crossed paths in the Levant, and more detail regarding that can be found in the previous podcast. I struggle to accept a concept of Homo sapiens encountering Neanderthals and going out on an all-out genocidal rampage. Certainly with DNA analysis suggesting that Homo sapiens were quite happy to sexually reproduce with Neanderthals, it would not be consistent with this rampage theory. Realistically, I believe that if there were enough resources for both species to live peacefully side by side, then this is not impossible as long as each tribe respected each other's range. In truth, we don't know this due to a lack of evidence, but it strikes me as just as unlikely as any other scenario. The one thing that has pushed me back in terms of understanding what happened when Homo sapiens ventured into the European heartland of the Neanderthals has been the results of a study made by Professor Tom Hyam's team at the School of Archaeology at Oxford University. Most books will tell you that Neanderthals died out after 30,000 years ago, which suggests that Homo sapiens and Neanderthals coexisted in Europe for around 10 to 15,000 years. The dates of Neanderthal remains were by and large dated using the most well-known radiometric dating method called radiocarbon dating. 
Materials containing the radioactive isotope called carbon-14 will experience half of those isotopes decaying and turning into nitrogen every 5,730 years, which is carbon-14's half-life. This sounds like a wonderfully convenient method of dating organic material, but it has two drawbacks. The first drawback is that if something is older than 50,000 years old, the amount of carbon can become so little that it can be hard to gather an accurate measurement. You would then need to find a radioactive element with a higher half-life, such as the potassium argon and argon-argon radiometric dating methods mentioned in our very early podcasts in this series. The second drawback comes when carbon-14, which is unrelated to the organic matter being dated, manages to infiltrate the reading. This can give you a false reading and make the organic matter seem more recent due to carbon, which is not supposed to be there, fooling the archaeologist. Hyam's team recognised this possibility and set about finding a way in which to filter out the foreign carbon to be able to get a purer reading of the Neanderthal remains which had been discovered across Europe over the course of the many recent decades. What Hyam's team found is that it is likely that our estimate of Neanderthal disappearance has been too recent and that we ought to be pushing it back to a period not 30,000 years ago, but nearer 40,000 years ago. Now, this might not seem too critical. Neanderthals were in Europe since before 250,000 years ago, when they may have evolved from Homo heidelbergensis, and then they disappeared comparatively recently. However, it is more critical when we try to determine why they disappeared, And the reason why this is so critical is because of when Homo sapiens started moving into Europe. European Homo sapiens. Now before I venture into this story, I just want to address one form of terminology which has been traditionally used to describe early European modern Homo sapiens, that being Cro-Magnon man. Now, the Cro-Magnon Man is named after the Cro-Magnon Rock Shelter, which had begun to be excavated from as far back as 1868. The remains found there were distinctly different from Neanderthal remains, which had also started being discovered in the 19th century. This led into a fascinating fantasy world of Cro-Magnons versus Neanderthals, which captured the public imagination. However, I don't want to refer to early Homo sapiens in Europe as Cro-Magnons, as I would rather use Cro-Magnon to refer to the site which can be found at Les Aisies de Taillac-Cirey in the Dordogne department of France. One of the most important sites when looking into the Homo sapiens migration into the Neanderthal European range and establishing what happened when they did is in modern-day Romania. The findings at Peștera Cuoase, which translates to Cave with Bones, in southwest Romania, has kept the secret of some of the earliest European Homo sapiens remains from as long ago as around 40,000 years. So we could assume from this that there was a migration of Homo sapiens 
from the Levant in the Middle East into Europe from its southeastern side. What we have discovered from one particular fossil is that there is an abundance of Neanderthal DNA within it. The only clear explanation is that a Neanderthal must have been involved in its recent ancestry. Homo sapiens did not have a problem with choosing a Neanderthal as someone that they could reproduce with. Subsequent finds have been found to suggest that Homo sapiens migrated into areas of Italy, Switzerland and France and then as far northwest as the United Kingdom which would likely have been accessible without the need of a sea crossing. Also we can see that the Italian and Iberian peninsulas were populated quite early but there isn't really anything to suggest a migration further north than modern day Germany and the Czech Republic suggesting that the Ice Age was preventing any quality of life hominins in anywhere other than Central Europe and southwards. It was around this era that we see very strong evidence of the human interest in art and ritual. The Red Lady of Paviland is a 33,000 year old skeleton dyed in red ochre which must be evidence of a ceremonial burial. Animal bones were turned into flutes and make no mistake about it, they were created for the purpose of creating musical melodies as demonstrated by the pierced holes which would change the pitch of the sound in exactly the same way as a modern wind instrument. We will investigate all of these aspects of the emergence of art and ritual in a specially dedicated podcast. In terms of the Neanderthal disappearance, what can we determine happened? Firstly, there is a question of interbreeding. This happened, but the anatomically modern human is really the species that prevailed over the Neanderthals, so although interbreeding happened, Neanderthal was probably not the most popular first choice of Homo sapiens for a breeding partner. So although Neanderthal is in our DNA, it was not a preference. It was obviously something that happened before non-African humans colonised the rest of the known world. A small but significant percentage of Neanderthal DNA exists in all non-African modern day humans. So any European interbreeding event between Homo sapiens and Neanderthals that happened around 40,000 years ago does not appear to have had any further consequence to human history than had already probably taken place. Any theory of a mass genocidal rampage of Homo sapiens spreading across Europe in a warrior style, brutally butchering any unfortunate Neanderthal that it come across, is not really supported by archaeological evidence. We would surely have found some categorically grim evidence of such behaviour by now. Whilst I am sure that the skirmishes over land and resources would have happened, I am sure that it was already something happening between Neanderthal tribes with each other and also Homo sapiens tribes with each other. If you're in a tribe and another tribe has resources that you need, you'll fight for them, whether you're a Neanderthal or Homo sapiens or whether the opponent is Neanderthal or Homo sapiens. What I personally think is likely is that Homo sapiens were superior in intelligence and adaptability. My evidence for this is simple, 
the Mode 4 or Ignatian technology attributed to Homo sapiens is clearly more advanced than the Mode 3 Mousterian technology attributed to Neanderthals. So therefore in a competition for resources, my betting money would be on Homo sapiens coming out on top. It would be no surprise to find out that as Homo sapiens migrated deeper and deeper into Europe, the Neanderthals were pushed further and further out into the edges of its range and into isolated pockets of communities that either ran out of resources or suffered a decline in general health due to inbreeding. Either way, we know that Homo sapiens appeared in Europe and soon after this, Neanderthals disappeared. This may be how we lost the Denisovans and the Flores man too. To me, the current evidence to hand points very strongly towards this sequence of events. It is at this point in our history that we accept Homo sapiens as the sole hominin survivor. All other hominins are now gone. Colonising the Americas The last major colonisation event of Homo sapiens was into the Americas. For those of you who have some familiarity with this particular study, you may very well be aware that this is one of those studies that has been a subject to a number of different theories as scientists continually argue about how this happened. A lot of the texts over the years have put vastly differing timescales onto this event, but the biggest mistake appears to be calling it an event. It is likely to be another lesson to those of us who want to refer to human colonisation events as something that just happened one day. The reality is that there was more than one migration into the Americas. The first question to ask in relation to however many migrations there were is how and when this was possible. With the Americas being separated as a landmass from Eurasia and Africa, we have to identify if there was a period of time when there was a link. The primary candidate for this link is the Bering Strait. The Bering Strait is around 80 kilometres wide. However, it is much further north than any other presence of hominins that we have discussed previously. The Bering Strait is around a thousand miles further north than the believed limits of the human range in Europe. This points us towards two factors, the first being that temperatures and conditions would have been considerably colder and the days of winter would have been considerably shorter than humans would have ever experienced before. However, the other key aspect regarding this would have been that Ice Age conditions would have closed the Bering Strait and enabled land mammals to cross from Asia into America. Scientists have deemed that the crossing would have been possible due to lower sea levels before 11,000 years ago, which is when the current interglacial period began. Certainly temperatures were lower than they were 11,000 years ago for tens of thousands of years beforehand. From this information, we could assume that the Bering Strait was always able to be crossed if humans were able to migrate that far north from anything after 40,000 years ago. Relevant Archaeological Sites So I'm going to cut straight to the chase. 
Most resources suggest that humans crossed the Bering Strait from Asia into the Americas somewhere between 14 and 18,000 years ago. From the 1950s, the theory that had the most traction within scientific circles was called the Clovis First Theory. Clovis is a very relevant reference to the first humans in the Americas because it also is the name of one of the first tall cultures of the Americas. The Clovis culture is named after what is now a city called Clovis, which is in the modern-day state of New Mexico in the United States of America. During the late 1920s and the early 1930s, a wave of excitement was created by the discovery of prehistoric bones and artefacts at the nearby Blackwater locality number one. The most famous artefacts are the bifacial projectile points which show intricate percussion work of a standard which we have not come across in this podcast series previously. That should be no surprise as these artefacts date to around 11 to 13,000 years ago and it is thought that these what are called Clovis points were hafted and used as composite spears. The Clovis first theory was the theory that those individuals who made these Clovis points were close descendants of the first wave of migrants who crossed the Bering Land Bridge into the Americas, which may have been supportive of the theory that this land bridge was crossed 14 to 18,000 years ago. However, subsequent discoveries have brought the Clovis first theory into question. The first site of interest has to be the Bluefish Caves, which can be found in the modern-day territory of Yukon in Canada. The Bluefish Caves were found to contain animal bones, which had apparently been worked by human hand, and the bones were first discovered in the 1970s. Archaeologists have dated the bones to be around 24,000 years old which predates the Clovis culture by at least 10,000 years. However, only a very small percentage of the bones show cut marks, so they are indeed still a bit of a mystery. Could it be that humans actually crossed into the Americas 24,000 years ago? And if so, why have we not found other sites that categorically support human presence in America from this time period and indeed the 10,000 years leading up to the Covis culture. Another site of interest would be in South America. The American anthropologist Tom Dillahay is credited with the excavations of a site called Monteverdi, which is all the way down in the south of modern-day Chile, which is pretty much as far south as you can go in the Americas. It is extremely long distance, from the Bering Strait, and I mean extremely long. Should you take a coastal route, which is pretty much as direct as you can go, we are talking a distance of at least 10,000 miles. The evidence of human occupation is claimed through the excavation of hearths, wooden posts, which may have been of the framework for huts and clothing made from animal hides among other things. So how old was the site? Well, original radiocarbon dating of the site when it was first discovered in the 1970s 
dated it to around 14,000 years ago, which is a 1,000 years earlier than the earliest date offered for the Clovis site, way up on the North American continent. If this was true, then it would completely undermine the Clovis first theory of the first settlers of the Americas being those of the Clovis culture. Many scientists had a very sceptical view of the claims made by the Monteverdi site. However, as more interest began to emerge into the Monteverdi site, the more reliable dating methods of the 1990s actually confirmed that the date of 14,000 years was likely, so the entire colonisation of the Americas had to be rethought. So to clarify the discoveries, the bluefish caves of Canada suggest that humans had successfully crossed Beringia into the continent of North America by 24,000 years ago. Monteverdi in Chile suggests that humans had successfully migrated to the far southern tip of the Americas within 10,000 years. Subsequent discoveries in the Americas date most of the North American sites no earlier than 16,000 years ago and South American sites no earlier than 15,000 years ago. So now we can build a picture, but not without first considering yet another theory which has gained some support. The Bluefish Cave's date of 24,000 years ago appears to be completely out of place, being so much earlier than any other confidently dated site in the Americas. How can this be the case? Well, once again we may be falling into the trap of judging colonisations by the names and borders that we today give to the modern world. Remember that we suggested that the Levantine coastline was really just a physical extension of the African coastline. Well, the same can apply to the crossing of Beringia. We should not look at this as the threshold, or as somewhere where there is some form of border control between Asia and North America. Asia and North America are modern concepts based on the world that we look at today. But 24,000 years ago, the two continents were connected, and crossing into North America would have simply seemed like an extension of the Asian landmass to those humans. The barrier back then would have not been the Bering Strait, but actually the large ice sheets which had expanded over the North American continent, potentially preventing humans from venturing much further than the bluefish caves. The theory is called the Beringian Standstill Hypothesis, and suggests that migrating humans would have become trapped at Beringia for many thousands of years, being blocked from migrating onwards by ice sheets and also being blocked from migrating back to Siberia for the same reason. Whether this happened or not, it could very well explain how we have seen human presence not far from Alaska as early as 24,000 years ago, but then nothing for around 8,000 years before humans spread into and colonised all of the Americas over the course of the next couple of thousand years. Archaeogenetics Over the course of the last two podcasts, we have plotted a path of human migration from Africa into the Levant, across the south of the Asian continent to Southeast Asia and across to Oceania, and also from Southeast Asia up through the Far East and then on to Beringia, into North America, 
and through the Americas to South America. Also, from the Levant into Europe. The archaeological studies have enabled us to make some fair assumptions regarding the migratory routes. One final thing that we have not discussed is the study of archaeogenetics. Archaeogenetics is the study of ancient genetics, mainly through DNA. DNA studies can lead us to identify relationships between one human being and another, whether that human be alive today, or whether that human is just that human's remains from many years ago. What we would hope for is that an independently created map of migrations made purely by archaeogeneticists would support our assumptions based on archaeological discoveries and the dates established through methods such as radiometric dating and geomagnetic dating, among others. I am pleased to say that in general the DNA analysis that leads us to create haplogroups of people tends to point towards the migrations which we have talked about being realistic, which is great because it took me a lot of study and thought to create these last two podcasts, so I would hate to have to scrap it all and start again. As ever, I will try to provide some helpful maths so that you, yourself, can muse over the evidence and create your own theories. And I would love to hear from you once you have. Next time, we will start setting up the next part of the chronological story of humans, which involves the emergence of agriculture and farming, by studying the lifestyle of hunter-gatherers in a bid to create an understanding of those humans who ventured into a new way of life around 12,000 years ago. As ever, I would really like to thank you for your time in listening to the podcast. I really appreciate it when you take the time to get in touch with the podcast. When you get in touch with me, you can email me at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. I have been contacted by a few people this week, so I'd really like to mention them out of respect for the time that they took to do that. Nick McJanet, who followed the podcast on Facebook for a few weeks now, has written in saying, love the show, logical, clear and very easy to listen to. Well, that's the name of the game. There's so much information and it really is hard to organise it and collate it. And I'm always worried that it's too complicated and I really am trying to simplify it. So that feedback is really valuable to me. I also received a message from Todd Smith who says, found this on Spotify during a long drive and got up to the Neanderthals. Look forward to many more. Great job, Chris. Cheers from the USA. Do you know, I spend a lot of my time driving. I drive a lot in my working week and I listen to a lot of podcasts and I think that was sort of the brainchild for this, that I wanted to create something that could be listened to while you're travelling or indeed, I would also be interested to hear how people listen to the podcast. You might do it during your Sunday ironing. I know some people that listen to other podcasts have reported into them that they they just get the ironing together and they stick a podcast on. So I'm wondering if anyone does that. But thank you so much for getting in touch, Todd. It really does mean a lot. I also received a 
visitor post to the Facebook page from Joshua Miller saying, thank you very much for taking the time to share this information with the rest of us listeners. I've been searching for a podcast just like yours for a year and a half, and I look forward to listening for years to come. And yeah, that was part of the reason why I started creating the podcast, because I was looking for something similar. And I thought to myself, do you know what? I think I'm quite capable of trying to do this myself and it will be the general public that tell me if I'm doing a good or bad job. So I appreciate your comment, Joshua, and very valuable. Please do, everyone else, if you get the opportunity, just send me a message. Let me know how I'm getting on, what you prefer to hear more of, the subjects that maybe I'm not covering that you wish I was. I'm quite happy to take a different direction at any time so please get in touch and let me know and let me make this podcast of value to you well that's enough really from me for this week next week we'll be exploring hunter gatherers the lifestyle of those humans that we've been talking about so we've learned about the migrations but exactly how were they living their day-to-day lives and how were they surviving? So we're going to be looking at that and going back over some of the species that we've already looked at throughout the podcast history. So that's the subject for next week and I'll look forward to linking back up with you again this time next week. Thanks for listening. The History of the World Podcast Written and presented by Chris Hasler Please consider making a financial contribution by going to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and clicking on the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and Tumblr. See you next time.